Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Sanya Faruqi Show. Today, we have somebody joining us from Turkey, Nazlan Ertan. She's a Turkish journalist and a communication expert who has worked in Brussels, Paris, and London. She has worked with the European Union, both on the side of the European Commission and the Turkish Ministry of European Affairs in the 2000s. She was the founding editor of Washington-based Al Monitor's culture section until last year, and she's currently a columnist for a Turkey-based English-language news outlet, Duvar English. English contributor to Al Monitor and co-host of an English language podcast The Turkish Coffee. Nazlan, thank you so much. It is wonderful to have you on the Sanya Faruqi show today. Thank you very much. It's a delight to be here. Likewise. So Nazlan, you've been working as a journalist for uh, you know a very long time and with major news organizations both in Turkey and internationally you've traveled a lot. So could you talk a little about uh, you know your experience and um, you know I would also love to hear uh, what it has been working as a journalist in Turkey. We hear so much about how freedom of press and you know freedom of expression is a huge challenge in the country. So you, take us through what it is to be a journalist. Yes, I started journalism in 12 September 1989. And I remember that date precisely because that was the ninth anniversary of the 1980 military coup in Turkey. And that was a time when the military was very influential and in fact, their influence remained for the next two decades, more or less. Journalism had always been very difficult in Turkey due to many different factors. For example, when I started, it was still the only one channel, the official television, and there were no broadcasts or newspapers in the mother tongues in Turkish, such as Kurdish or Laz. We did go through a more liberal period, and that was a great time to be a journalist, because as you and I know, journalism is one of the nicest professions in the whole world. It sort of satisfies your curiosity. You can ask awkward questions to people, and that's a delight. So when Turkey became, in 1999, a candidate for the European Union, that was a very liberal period, or at least a relatively liberal period. But towards the mid-2000s, the Justice and Development Party of Recep Tayyip Erdogan has... The Justice and Development Party of Recep Tayyip Erdogan has sort of uh, strengthened its grip on journalism and then the freedom of expression and freedom of the media has been going downhill ever since then. And in 2016, when there was the unsuccessful military coup in Turkey, there has been even worse. And when we look at it, today there are 70 journalists in jail and 170 press groups that has been closed down since 2016. Many of the great journalists of Turkey, people we considered role models, or the best ones of third generations, are now living abroad because they cannot enter Turkey. They fear that if they enter the country, they are going to be arrested. One of my very close friends was not able to attend the funeral of her mother last month because she was, she was afraid that she would be arrested at the border. To make things worse, I think the pro-government uh, companies 
have started controlling the media. So more than 80% of the media is now controlled by companies that are close to the government. So that means if you're a journalist that is critical of the government, which is basically our job as the fourth estate, you cannot find employment or you have to face a lot of censorship. So finally, many people have given up and they went out. They have either established their own YouTube channels. Those who were lucky were able to find international jobs with the international news agencies. Many people started their own thing. And some of our colleagues, fortunately, started their own uh, startup journalism online, which gave us, such as Duvar English, which gave us uh, a place, a platform to write as we like. Yeah. But as a journalist in Turkey, have you ever faced any sort of uh, threat, you know, because of the kind of work that you do? Has it been challenging? I'm sure it has been challenging. But um, yeah, can you give us a few examples of that? It is it is challenging. But, you know, I had a, in the 2000s, I had a fling with the uh, private sector. I worked as a corporate affairs director of a large uh, retail group. And when I came back, I came back as a culture journalist. So it was less risky. Besides, I have always worked as a in English and English somehow protects you because it gets some of the trolls off your back. Unfortunately for us journalists of today, trolls have become a major tool of some of the governments. And I did have the odd one in my back while I was working for All Monitor, but it was it was all right. I mean, nothing that I would consider very, very risky. But on the other hand, there were so many other journalists who faced very difficult situations. One was a friend who actually was, who woke up one day and she found the police at her doorsteps because of a, uh, because of a photo she had posted several years ago on Nevruz, the Kurdish New Year. She was accused of separatist terrorism propaganda. Yeah. So it's it's um, it's obviously not easy. And now that you're exploring different platforms, you're blogging, you're doing a podcast. How has that been? Do you think expressing opinions on the Internet is easier than the traditional media platforms and especially the ones that do it in local languages, as you just mentioned earlier? I will be very honest. I'm a horrible blogger. I actually need an editor on my back to get me to write. The reason I started my blog was that at that point in time, I was working for a newspaper and my forte is satirical articles. So I wrote this rather satirical article yeah. on the president, I think. Uh, I said, I said something along the lines, how sad that he thinks that of himself as John Wayne, but then there comes someone who compares him to the bad guy in the Lord of the Rings. And then the newspaper will not publish it. And I was so angry with them that I decided to start my own blog. Yeah. So I went for it. I went on with it for a while. But then I started as a columnist uh, in Duvar English and I'll monitor. And somehow the blog became dormant. And uh, then recently we have started with a friend, the Turkish Coffee Podcasts. We were two women who had parallel lives. When I was in Brussels, she was working for the BBC in London. So I pitched to her 
And when I was working as a journalist, she was working for the EU. When I was working for the European Union, she was working for the United Nations. So we spent a lot of time uh, discussing men, politics, arts, international relations, men again. And this year under the pandemic, we said, why not start taping what we discuss so we can offer some original but still friendly and cordial conversation. And since this was all about, uh, well, we always had Turkish coffee while we were talking, so we could sort of look at the grains and joke about the future, we decided to call it Turkish Coffee Podcasts. But you are right, a lot of people are turning into YouTube or podcasts, mainly because the mainstream media is so tightly controlled that we, are, we find it difficult to seek employment. Besides, we have put our hopes in the young generation and we find YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and uh, podcasts easier, uh, easier to reach them. Yeah, women in Turkey are being very vocal about sexual harassment and domestic violence. There was a huge hashtag movement last year in Turkey, the Challenge Accepted movement, um, which was used- Did you? Did you? Oops, sorry. Did you put your photo as well? Yes, I did. I did. I did. Um, of course, Good. I did. I, I, I uh, posted a black and white photograph with the challenge I accepted and I tagged a few friends of mine. And that movement was used to draw attention to gender-based violence in the country. And I think it became a global movement sort of, you know, that influenced and that made women from everywhere connect to it. So what are your comments on that? Um, you know, how has, how has that been going on in the country? Well, you know, the challenge accepted hashtag and the black and white photos came when the conservative part of the government wanted to withdraw from the Istanbul Convention, which was the major international agreement against domestic violence. Yeah. Uh, and actually, women united against that. And even women from the ranks of the ruling party, they wanted to defend their convention, which they had carved out. And they came up with this uh, challenge accepted. And there were all those black and white photos all over Internet. But the Turkish women have been generally good at finding interesting hashtags. Another one was, called, was about reverse sexism they had come up with this hashtag where they would take those gender-based prejudice, uh, prejudices or proverbs, simply substitute the word husband, uh, sorry, uh, they would take those gender-based uh, prejudices or proverbs, substitute wife with husband or women with men, and they would come up with the opposite of what was said, such as my husband need not be a virgin, or my husband can work if he wants to, or a decent man does not wear shorts sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But all the women are able to mix their uh, rebellion with humor. The, the situation is rather grim, of course. Yeah. Uh, some recent movements have shown that there has been in Turkey three women killed on the same day. And when we look at the figures of femicides, the number for 2019 is 474 women who were killed by men they know and men in general. Many of those women were actually women who were walking out from an abusive marriage or wanted to leave a boyfriend. So in many cases, it is not the strangers who killed them, 
but actually men who wanted to hold them back. And of course, domestic violence has increased a lot during the pandemic. The government is saying the contrary, but the women's organizations are saying that it has increased. So the situation is not going particularly well for women. And women today are one of the strongest rising voices against the government. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little about the protests that have taken place? And, and you know, when we see the protests happening, we're obviously seeing very strong, empowered women out on the streets. But there are so many women and activists who are also jailed at the same time. Can you talk a little about that? The women, the women's protests, uh, you mean the women's protests? There has been several now. Mm-hmm. Of course, the, what women have been doing is that they take to the streets, but the governor's offices can say that these are illegal protests. And so can they can be taken to jail. And some of the women are there. Some of the women's groups have their cases going on in front of the court now. And they are looking. So the government is taking a very strong stance against protests and the pandemic and the social distancing rules, unfortunately, has proved to be a very strong, a very ready alibi in all those measures. But it's not simply the woman. Turkey. Uh, The gay pride, which we Turks have been proud to have until the year 2015, because there has been hundreds and thousands of participants in Istanbul, have also been banned. And now, Boğaziçi University, the most uh, prestigious public university of Turkey, is also a scene of demonstrations. So in Turkey, you see demonstrations from many different groups. Yeah, yeah. Last year, there was a Turkish drama named If Only, which was removed from Netflix, uh, you know, over a dispute with the Turkish government on the character, uh, a gay character who was removed from the show. So even Pride marches, as you just mentioned, are facing backlash. Do you think LGBTQ rights in the country are at a stake now? Very, it's very badly affected. The last five years have seen a very strong deterioration of the gay rights in Turkey. And that has been on, as you have said, several platforms. One is actually on the screen. We don't see gay characters anymore. We certainly don't see them on the uh, traditional TV channels, but even the government's hand would sort of extend over to streaming services to make sure that uh, what they call, uh, there is no encouragement of the gay lifestyle. Uh, It is extended, the same hand is extended over to the education sector. What we see is that over last summer, while all the students were in lockdown in their houses, I'm sorry, last spring, when there was a lockdown of the students and they were in remote education, uh, some of the schools wanted the students to draw rainbows so that they could imagine outside which is very typical and rather cute. But somehow the Ministry of Education got it uh, somehow mixed up with the rainbow symbol and they have decided to forbid this practice and sent notification to schools to stop this practice of getting children to draw rainbows and post them over their windows. This was amazing. The government has something with the rainbows. And what I think was most serious and worse was that the director general of the religious affairs uh, directorate in Turkey, 
in one of his speeches, referred to the homosexual piece of people as spreading disease, which was possibly the worst thing you could do during a pandemic. Yeah. So what, I mean, of course, religion has become very controlled and influenced and in sort of very conservative over the few years from Turkey being looked upon as something very, a place which is so liberal, it's, it's going just the opposite way right now. Um, what about just the freedom of women in the country when with, with, you know, with so many Islamic laws that are being implemented, whether it's what they wear, whether it's, um, you know, how they behave, uh, how they should behave in a marriage, in a family, in, in their domestic life. Could you talk a little about that? Of course. What, what you see in Turkey is a very mixed picture. In the early part of the century is that uh, you have seen the laws changed, which stopped men from being the head of the family. So while I was in my 20s, the civil law said that the head of the family was the man. And finally, in my 30s, that has changed under the civil law, given men and women equal standing, equal say in the family, partic an important topic, particularly when it comes to savings and deciding where to send the children, the schooling of the children. But then, despite the good legal system that has been established, the present government seems to put the unity of the family in front of the rights of women as individuals. And there has been, although there has not been radical change in laws, there has been several attempts to change the laws, but it has not really succeeded. Uh, there is all this rhetoric coming from political circles, urging women to be chaste, urging women to stand every uh, to bear as much as they can for keeping the family together and generally urging them to be patient but then this is the 21st century women are not buying it anymore yeah what what is the internal political uh, setup how um, is it easy for women to join politics is it easy for women to have a voice in politics in turkey it is very this also is a very mixed picture. The participation of women in politics is also a very mixed picture. We would like to see more quotas and have more women. And there are several parties who have achieved that. One of them is the pro-Kurdish People's Democracy Party, where we see women. And this is amazing because they have come from a very traditional structure in the southeast of Turkey, but they have managed to integrate women into the party. And that's the strength of the women. They managed to push into the power and get into the party. Uh, Justice and Development Party also poses a mixed picture. There are many women in it, but some of them are actually very much showcases. Uh, but there are women who wield real power within the party itself. And there are there is a second generation of women who come from conservative families, but who are also pushing for their rights. And those are the women who, uh, who prove themselves to be the strong supporters of the Istanbul Convention. Yeah. Uh, but Turkey has also imposed a new law which ensures that the representatives of the country, you know, they are the ones who tackle the complaints about the content that goes on platform. Um, human rights activists are calling it censorship of content. Do you think that's going to, um, or rather, how is that affecting free speech in the country? 
I think that is actually now, of course, Turkey's biggest problem is the freedom of expression. I don't think there is any doubt about that. And all the other problems we see, such as um, academic independence, such as problem of newspapers, problems that journalists confront, problems of representation in politics, all stem from that. And of course, the uh, online platforms had given us Turks some breathing space, be it the sort of the opposition politicians or the NGOs on Twitter, or producers and directors on Netflix. Now it seems as if this platform is also sliding behind our feet. And of course, that is why it's a very important nail uh, that we see here. In July, the president said that he was going to fight all those people who were using inter uh, internet to insult him his family and all citizens of Turkey, as well as sacred values of the Turkish people. And this law is of course, is a step in that direction. But the problem is the president seems so thin-skinned when it comes to a bit of humor. Political satire has been one of the great traditions of Turkey, as most of the Mediterranean society. And we used to have very strong satirical newspapers. And even during military times, you could mock the military leader or the president. But now, when this happens, there are so many fines and punishments, and particularly with fines, several humor magazines went out of business. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned and we, uh, we're talking about satire and comedy because in India right now, uh, you know, there's a similar case where we have a comedian, stand-up comedian who was uh, arrested for a joke he didn't crack. So, you know, it's very um, similar to the stories that, you know, you've also mentioned about what's happening in Turkey. But um, yeah, satire seems to be something, uh, you know, that upsets a lot of uh, politicians these days. Totalitarian, totalitarian politicians mostly. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, I, you, know, I, you know, it's interesting. I want you to tell us a little about how it was to be a journalist in the 90s, because you know, as I hear about everything that's happening in Turkey now, it would be interesting to just get some perspective about how it was so different, say, 20 to 30 years ago, and, and what, what it is to see that sort of a decline when it comes to freedom of speech, freedom of expression, even being able to mock, as you mentioned, the military using satire and jokes and, and cartoons, which you know, it's unimaginable in both our countries now, not just in Turkey, but also in India. Sania, I think somebody said that when you look at whom you can laugh at, it tells you a lot about the power structure in a country. No, I will correct that. When you look at whom you cannot laugh at, it says a lot about the power structure of a country. And of course, in 1990s also, I would caution about painting them as some sort of paradise. There were a lot of things you couldn't mock. For example, you could not mock the founder uh, of Turkey, Atatürk or you couldn't mock the military all that much. And definitely the Kurdish issue, and still during the time of the Cold War, communism was pretty much off limits. But you could look at Turkey, you could laugh at Turkey's Ottoman past, and you could actually 
ever so slightly laugh at religion. Now it seems the other way around. You could do as many jokes you like about Atatürk, but if it is about Ottomanism and Islam, it doesn't quite work. So that shows perhaps how the power structure in Turkey has changed. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, um, lastly, I just want to ask you something about your podcast. I, you know, you've mentioned it's, it's um, you know, started between you and your friend. I love the name, the Turkish coffee. I mean, it just sounds delightful. Um, so tell us what kind of conversations uh, you want to have, you know, using platform like podcast what what kind of messaging do you want to achieve what we want to do is that actually a sense of humor still exists in turkey we will take up very serious issues from the recent me too movement that we have seen in the literary field and uh, or uh, the concept of nepotism where leaders bring up their uh, sons-in-law in key positions, or even the sort of the very prejudiced look at women. Uh, but we try to do it with good humor by sort of looking larger than Turkey, uh, looking at events that are cross-cultural, across boundaries, and also borrowing a little from uh, literature and cinema and art as well. Okay, so um, on that note, we're going to wrap up because we've run out of time. Thank you so much, Nazlan. It was wonderful talking to you and thank you for sharing your insights on Turkey. And, um, you know, I look forward to listening to your podcast uh, regularly. And thank you for being on the Sanya Faruqi show. Those of you who have tuned in, thank you for watching. I hope that you will subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I'll see you again next week.